Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajgopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings, cities, and all the things that go into them. We're airing this episode in August 2021, and there's no clear end in sight for the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks, of course, to the Delta variant. The Centers for Disease Control in the US has had to change its advisory a few times this year. Its most current advice, if you're In an area with high infection rates, wear a mask everywhere, whether you're vaccinated or not. But if your area hasn't been affected much by the Delta variant, you should still be wearing a mask indoors, whether you're vaccinated or not. So really, we all know now, it's all about air. And because it's all about air, it also matters whether you're indoors or outside. So that's today's episode. What do we do now for clean air? We have two segments for you today. Segment one, HVAC. So we all intuitively know that indoor air is more risky, generally speaking, than outdoor air for the coronavirus. And This is because of the way we build commercial buildings now in the United States. That is the way we build offices, hotels, hospitals, restaurants, malls, movie theaters. In all those spaces, the air inside invariably goes through an HVAC system or HVAC system, you'll hear said both ways. So it's basically recirculated air that isn't immediately exchanged with the air outside. Now the system was built this way for a reason, obviously. It was built to recirculate heating or cooling so that you don't have to run up your electricity bill heating and cooling air over and over again. But of course, it also recirculates germs. Our reporter, Audrey Gray, remembers going to a restaurant and facing a dilemma. If she sits indoors, should she sit next to an air vent? Now, I know at least some of you have had this dilemma yourselves because I know I've been in that situation. Is the vent good because it's bringing fresh air in? Or is it bad because it might be blasting you with coronavirus? It was so scary. And then on top of that, of course, we had wildfires record wildfires last year in the United States and around the world. So at that point, people were in a terrible situation of understanding that the outdoor air was more dangerous even than the indoor air and just trying to make decisions about how to navigate this this new world. And then this year, even though we've adjusted to many of the pandemic changes, now we're dealing with record heat, just very scary temperatures this summer all around the world. We're talking about 125 degrees Fahrenheit in some places. So never has a discussion about indoor air quality been more important. And I'm very grateful to be joined right now by two engineers 
to talk about how thoughtful design can help cool things off, keep us safe, especially now. I can't imagine what this last year has been like for you two. Joining me now are Nathan Stadola, Chief Engineer at the International Well Building Institute, and Josh Greenfield, Director of High Performance Design at HDR, an international design firm. Both originally trained as mechanical engineers. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Audrey. Thank you. It's good to have you to delve into this. Let's talk about the pandemic, at least briefly. I don't know what this year was like for you all, but I know everybody was calling right away asking for help. What have you learned? You know, at first, I think it was, it was kind of like the Wild West. There was a lot of unknowns and a lot of questions more than answers. And I think we really relied on a lot of the higher research-based industries to provide that data. And they did a great job for the HVAC world and kind of setting the standard of what are some initial opportunities for both the residential and commercial built environments to combat and act as kind of a, a short-term answer to giving people relief. And whether that meant different filtration technologies, natural ventilation, both in residential and commercial. I even saw an interesting thing for residential. They recommended running your bathroom exhaust fans more to bring in outside air. So that was a lot of these interesting short-term fixes. But on the commercial side, I felt there was a lot of need for looking at existing buildings of what we could do to those buildings, but not provide an additional hurdle for operation. And so designing systems that worked with the existing systems. And I think moving forward, there'll be a lot of evolvement and we'll look back and we'll use this, this COVID time period as a, a design bar. You know, how are we gonna improve upon this moving forward? Nobody had ever been asked to change so many things so fast. I mean, everyone around the world changed their lifestyles overnight. It's almost like a terrible speed practice for climate change. I think that um, an, an important thing also, whether it's working for resilience against climate change or with the pandemic here, is to get in touch with an engineer. There's a lot of rules of thumb, such as providing more ventilation, increasing the filtration level, but you really need to be able to assess what the existing building um, is capable of before installing those, putting too high uh, of a merbrated filter in could overpower the fan and reduce your airflow rate. Blindly increasing the airflow rate could create certain air streams that might concentrate the air in certain areas. So uh, before there's any drastic changes, it's always important to get an engineer involved as part of that. And then the other types of things are uh, more universal, such as installing standalone air purifiers. They may not have the same coverage as a centrally installed unit, but it's a lot harder to go wrong with them. I just sent one to my son in Los Angeles. You know, it was like get, preparing for this year's fire season or trying to at least calming my mama heart a little bit. I want to go back and just hit on something I want to explain to people what MERV means. It's basically a, a rating system for air filters. And suddenly people wanted something that was over 14, which is a, a, a rating that is quite high and dense. When you have a dense filter, it's harder to push air through it. So you use more energy to get your air pushed through in a building and that can really add up. And this is why people needed to call engineers. It wasn't as easy as put a better filter in. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, we always use the term, the drop-in filter. And in existing op uh, systems like that, MERV 14 filter wasn't necessarily a drop-in filter. You know, it creates an additional, what's called static 
pressure on the supply fan and it only reduces capacity, increases fan energy. And so you're not getting the full flow, both heating, cooling and airflow to your facility. So while it definitely has that, that efficiency value with built into the filter, it's not always the best system methodology holistically to do that. But there's many passive and active systems on the market for both the residential and commercial built environments, everything from these high efficiency MER filters, whether it's MER 14 or HEPA, activated charcoal filtration, the ultraviolet C disinfection systems, or bipolar ionization. And there's a lot of data on the market for these. A lot of it's research-based data, but the real-world data is starting to flow in little by little. And us as engineers, you know, we have to trust the data, but we have to do a lot of research on all these different technologies to make sure the right one fits the right application. I mentioned the bipolar ionization, which is a great technology. In my opinion, it has a lot of potential. Hey, let's just explain that really. It's so, it's so sci-fi to me. Okay. Explain really short. Cause I know there's actually disagreements about this thing. So, but this is fun. So tell me what, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> so it's really, it's actually a pretty simple technology. So you you have two charging poles. It kind of looks like a field goal of a football field and you have one positively charged and one negatively charged. So you're, you're taking the water vapor in the air and you're splitting it into positive ions and negative ions. So then those ions go into the space and they want to get back together. They want to find other particles and reattract. So they're actually finding particles in the air and getting larger. So you think about MERV-14 filtration, the idea is provide a higher efficiency filter to catch smaller particles. Bipolar ionization makes the particles bigger. So your typical filters will catch them easier or they'll fall to the ground and then be picked up at, you know, the nightly vacuuming or maintenance crew gets it. But Nathan, what do you think about bipolar ionization as a, as a possibility using that box to clear air? There are a, a number of concerns in a different certain situations or with certain models that you need to be aware of. So, for example, one of the concerns on them is that they may produce ozone, and that is a very good cleaner. It's good at disinfecting. It's good at breaking down VOCs. It's also very bad for the people in the space. And there are two different standards from UL that uh, are for ozone. One is for low ozone, and that's the 867, and then there's for no ozone, which is 2998. And it's important to be able to, to look for devices that are going on the no ozone rather than just the low ozone output that's there. I wanted to hit on UV. It's funny because my favorite jazz club in New York actually advertised their UV system in, you know, for their HVAC as a way to bring people back in to hear music, which I thought was the most inventive marketing I'd heard yet for New York jazz. But so a, a UV system similar to bipolar ionization, it's just, it's, it can be in one spot and it's not a huge mechanical device, but it's a uh, light. There are uh, two places that UV is often used for. First, which has been used for quite some time, is on the cooling coils of your HVAC system. So that moist air condenses on the cooling coils. It forms a great ha habitat for mold and microbes unless it's, it's effectively draining. And that putting the UV on there can um, really help with that. Now, there's also been an increased interest in putting in UV system in the duct to treat the moving air. And it's the same underlying technology and mechanism on why it works there, but they're fundamentally different devices because in, in the cooling coils, those fins aren't going anywhere. You can use a moderate level light there and it just shines all day and it can work on it. 
but for the air and the ducts, it is flying by. So in that instant that it's exposed to the UV light, it has to get the same dose to deactivate the um, viruses or other microbes in there. So it requires a much higher power than it one that's used in the, uh, on the ducts. So this is interesting because I, I get the sense that as engineers, you can decide this is probably will work best uh, in, in this situation or in this climate. I just want to go big picture for a minute. All of these systems can clean our air, but they all sound like energy gobblers. If we're solving immediate problems, we want to clear and cool air, say this summer. But if we're thinking long-term problems, we do not want to use more energy if it's tied to a fossil fuel grid, which almost all of them are still right now, which means more carbon emissions in the air, which means more heat, more planet blanketing greenhouse gases. So how do you as engineers try to solve for how to basically mitigate and adapt at the same time? That's a great topic right there. And it's something that we come across in every single project. And I, I think it's important to start early and have the right voices at the design table early because you can get those decisions made and, and look at the project holistically and say, where, what climate do we have to take advantage of? What environmental hurdles do we have? It's that, that short-term fix for air quality, which creates additional energy, but that creates a detriment on the long-term for climate change. And it was kind of interesting how that played out in 2020 and early 21 is that for the safety of, of occupants, we sent them home. And their 4% energy reduction in the US in a year timeframe from sending people home. And then on an emission standpoint, I think it was like seven or 8%. And you saw those photos of Los Angeles and the, the before and after of the, the smog and the emissions photos. And that's not a long-term, you know, sending people home is not the long-term fix. So I think we need to look at that phenomenon and say, how can we build on that? And, and from a design standard, we have to look at more high performance systems. And one of the things is waste streams, looking at when you're designing a building and you have all these different waste streams coming out of the building, whether it's exhaust air, relief air, water coming from the building, wastewater coming from the building that has embodied energy within it. We need to look at more opportunities to recover that. And you know, climate change is big on increasing temperature, but it's also gonna be big on humidity. And yes. for bacteria and virus, that's, that's the vehicle. Humidity is the vehicle. So we need to better control that as these as it's increasing. And there's a lot of different distribution systems and generation systems that are going to be more advantageous for that. So we're really focusing on a lot of these systems that I would call decoupled systems that deliver the outside air directly to the space. That's going to be better for the indoor air quality. And then from the energy standpoint, that deliver air right to the breathing zone. So displacement ventilation, underfloor air distribution. You think of a typical building HVAC system and the diffusers are on the ceiling, but the occupants are at the floor level. There's that large gap between, and we're essentially throwing air at a high velocity to get it there, where the more common design is to deliver the air where the people are. What are the energy-saving air cleaners you like, Nathan? Not necessarily an air cleaner, but in terms of different strategies to 
address clean air in the space, obviously include ventilation, and uh, that one of the things you can work with is only ventilating when we need to. Josh was mentioning how buildings were using less energy when people weren't there because they were at home, but that can also work on a more local scale using demand controlled ventilation so that there are sensors that are measuring the CO2 levels in the space and that they're ventilating enough and in fact more when there's lots of people such as in a conference room, but if a conference room or classrooms are unoccupied, it can tone that down. There's been a lot of talk recently that buildings historically have been um, designed for men standing in business suits, which not typical occupants anymore. And that if they're, I mean, many of them are overcooled. So that if you can look at assessing the population better or even looking at having some local level of control. In the last year, ASHRAE Standard 55 about thermal comfort introduced a new section on thermal environmental control classification levels. It doesn't say this is what you must do, but it defines what those levels are so that building owners and the design team can better select what the appropriate one is so that uh, people are able to adjust their surroundings rather than trying to condition the entire space to a single thermal condition. We got, we got used to that with lights, right? We, we, everyone just adapted to the idea that when you walk out of a conference room, the lights are going to go off automatically. That, so you're saying that same thing to some degree could happen with ventilation or, or heating or cooling too. I want to talk about this extreme heat. Y'all's thoughts on that. I mean, look at the summer. We've seen 124 in Palm Springs. I mean, we're just dealing with levels that are, are just unconscionable day to day. And, and these heat waves are lasting, you know, for two weeks at a time even. Yeah, the, the thermal comfort model that you guys were discussing is, is interesting as it correlates to these increased temperatures. You're exactly right. You know, ASHRAE 55, you look through the tables and they have this measurement called the clove value using your calculations. And it's like business suit, slacks, vest. And that's just not, you know, the standard now. And I'm glad to see there's a, a new thermal comfort, new called the adaptive thermal comfort model, which is more based on natural ventilated buildings. But it goes on the phenomenon that people living in warmer climates or warmer temperatures can tolerate warmer temperatures indoors than those in colder environments. And I think mm. we're going to see that. And it's, you know, that's specifically for natural ventilated buildings, but I could see kind of a hybrid model develop that takes into account those higher adaptive temperatures for conditioned buildings as well. But I think even in these extreme temperatures, we still need to look at every opportunity for clean, fresh, natural ventilation air, because that's what the adaptive model is built in. And, you know, we worked on a project in for a, a higher ed campus in the Northwest where we had smart sensors that essentially were always detecting the temperature, the humidity, and provided real-time feedback to the individual occupants with a green light right on the wall that said, this is the best time to do natural ventilation. And the good thing about technology and the internet of things, I'll say, is that you could provide any type of parameter to provide that feedback. So it doesn't necessarily have to be climatic data. It could be environmental data, whether it's uh, smoke detection from wildfires or data from local highways and airports, all of that impacts the indoor envir environmental quality, which is different than the indoor air quality, more holistic, but all those impacts are going to affect productivity, worker wellness. There's a whole school of thought that the, the ways that we need to adapt to a different climate are actually not bad living at all. It's windows open more. It's finding ways to 
prevent fires. It's, you know, it's, there's so, so many things that we're being forced to do that may actually be more healthy and comfortable for us in the long term. Before I let you all go, I just wanted to hear your thoughts about what you have on your radar in the summer of 2021 as something you'd like to see happen or just general thoughts that you would advise other designers about air quality this year. Uh, I think that going to what Josh said earlier is an important thing is when you're working on creating a new building, getting everyone in the room in the beginning and lead in well, the integrative design is, is some form of a precondition. So it's a necessary requirement just because you know that if everyone's not on the same page in the beginning, then going and having to change things down the line is just multiples more expensive. I totally agree. And I wish I could say that there was one magic product that could solve everything. But I honestly, I think it's the design team right now that's that magic product. Architects and engineers and clients and contractors and commissioning agents and environmental planners, getting them all in the, at the table early on and being instigators. For me, you know, I always look at the phrase, let's go outside to get some fresh air. And it gives people such a negative connotation relative to indoor air, because essentially when you look at that sentence, it says the indoor air is unhealthy. And I want to change that perception. I'm really grateful to you both for working so hard on some of the most complex systems challenges humanity has ever faced. So thank you for some of your ideas. Wish we had more time, but I appreciate what you shared today. Thank you again. Thanks, Audrey. Thanks, Audrey. Thanks for having us. Deep Green will be back after a short commercial break. Deep Green is brought to you by Interface, the Metropolis Sustainability Next partner. Love carbon and choose carbon negative flooring. When you specify flooring products from Interface, you're selecting carpet tile, LVT and Nora rubber that is carbon neutral across its full product lifecycle through the company's third-party verified carbon neutral floors program. Visit interface.com slash carbon neutral to learn more. Deep Green is back, and we're talking today about clean air. Now, you just heard a lot about solutions that are based on engineering or new technologies. And as Audrey said, those kinds of things invariably require energy to run. And often, they're just a Band-Aid fix. So what's the long-term fix here? Should we be turning to nature? Should we be thinking about bigger changes fundamentally shifting the way we design buildings? And should we be thinking about reconnecting to natural systems like plants, soil, and microorganisms? To answer that, here's reporter Akiva Blander with Brent Bucknam of Haifei Design Laboratory. Hello everyone, Akiva Blander of Metropolis Magazine. And I have here with me Brent Bucknam of the Bay Area-based studio Haifei Design Laboratory. We're going to be talking a bit about all of the attention in the last year or so directed toward air quality. First, maybe we could get started, Brent, if you could just talk a little bit about Haifei, which you founded, and sort of what their approach has been to some of the emerging crises of the last year and change. I founded Haifei Design Laboratory 
roughly 10 or 12 years ago. And we started Haifei Design Laboratory as an interdisciplinary firm that was really trying to bridge the gap between more innovative environmental science and research and the built environment and practice. It came from a background of doing a lot of engineering and ecology work and saw a gap of architects and engineers and urban planners tackling a lot of sustainability issues and climate change issues, but not really linking that back to human and environmental health. And so the concept of HIFI was obviously drawn from a one, a double entendre of the HIFI hip hop movement, which is a good cultural influence for us. And then obviously HIFI as uh, mycelium fungus. And for us, it was sort of a metaphor of how HIFI are an interconnecting force between a lot of elements in nature and this sort of networking component they often call Haifei the the internet of the forest in the sense that it shares information between plants, soil, trees, microbes. So for us, it was how do we start to do that and fulfill that role in the urban built environment? Our work uh, has ranged over the last decade from doing like large-scale museums and architectural work, designing living roofs and green walls and systems like that. And our work has transitioned, I would say, to really primarily focusing on environmental justice communities like our own in West Oakland. We started our office and we lived in West Oakland. And what we saw was a lot of ability for us to bring solutions around green infrastructure to solve the sort of air, water and soil contaminations that were inequitably impacting my community and many other communities around the country. Since then, um, our work is really targeted and focused a lot around urban environmental health and solutions to mitigate that for the most impacted people. So what was the Bay Area experience last year when two major airborne crises kind of broke out? It was really interesting when the pandemic broke out first, it was ironically, we were going into public health month and we were teed up to do a radio show and a, a news article a publication around some really interesting work we're doing around schools, proximity to freeways and the air quality impacts on students and cardiovascular health and other brain development issues doing some really cool research around that. And basically it all went radio silent and everyone sort of in the journalism world shifted over to tackling the more immediate pandemic. And for me, I saw that as an interesting challenge at the time, to be honest. We were really looking at what we see as an everyday pandemic that impacts environmental justice communities throughout the country around air quality. And we saw this in a sense sort of overshadowing that. So at first I was thinking, oh, wow, you know, we've been trying to get people interested in environmental and public health for decades, and we spend no money on it in our country. And I'm like, this is a great opportunity to do it, but maybe we're going to completely focus on one myopic issue that is extremely impactful right now, but not actually look at the other issues that actually plague communities around our country and around the world every day, having similar impacts. As the pandemic started to unfold, even really early by April, there was what I thought was sort of a shimmering light of of refocusing the pandemic impacts also on these environmental justice communities in our country. Essentially what we saw was early data was starting to show that certain cultures and certain people in environmental justice communities were being more impacted by COVID than others. And I think that then brought out this really important interconnectedness between our environment and our health. So what would an interconnected holistic approach or 
intervention of HIFI look like in the context of these crises and given your past work in this movement? I think still most of the solutions for people, you know, from a built environment standpoint were to, in many ways, open windows or install HEPA filters or improve those filters. I saw with both of those solutions, a lot of equity issues. So for example, where I live, opening a window may reduce the potential impact from something like COVID, but it may also introduce outdoor pollution for people that are living next to freeways. The other thing I saw with more of with the technological solutions also was that, you know, poorer people that live in older housing stock in certain communities, installing a HEPA filter might not help them because they've got really leaky buildings. And so it kind of, in this interconnected component, it really starts to stitch together, not only just a singular issue like COVID exposure, but then all of the overlaying environmental impacts that are inequitably distributed through our country. So certain people not being able to actually implement this, the same solutions as others. Similarly, like if people live in a large building, a newly built residential tower, it's gonna to be a lot easier for them to put HEPA filters in than small houses distributed through old housing stock. So for us, I think a lot of what it allowed, allowed us to do, and interestingly, this, you know, this last presidential race was the first time questions came up in the debate, for example, around things like fence line communities and environmental justice communities that were more exposed. And I think a lot of that was driven by some of the inequities we we're seeing in the research from COVID. And so for groups like us that have been working in environmental justice for a decade, it was really exciting to see those, those issues come to the forefront of our policy. We know purification interventions don't work or aren't scalable or not applicable to a whole range of different communities, but are there any that you would advocate for and say, do you have a lot of promise in their versatility and even their ability to deal with equity issues? In our communities, we are working on people being able to better weatherize their house and install better indoor air filtration. And I think those are critical in these acute pandemic issues like a um, disease outbreak. But I think what we want to do is also, as we put money in both a regional and more of a, a national level into these issues, we also don't want to look myopically at one pandemic, but rather realize that we have a bunch of environmental pandemics with the, the goal of actually tackling not only indoor air pollution, what is important also is tackling outdoor air pollution so that we have more balanced and equitable communities. And ways to mitigate that are focusing on things like vegetated buffers and green belts near freeways that buffer communities. The other solution is actually rethinking our urban infrastructure networks to actually separate trucks and vehicles from pedestrians and humans so that we, we don't have to mitigate the health impacts from those air quality exposures. Another interesting realm that we've been working on is actually what we call indoor air biofilters. We've been doing a bunch of research and installing them on a number of projects where we actually take instead of a antiseptic approach to indoor air filtration, a more probiotic approach. And one of the interesting opportunities there is things like charcoal filters and certain HEPA filters will be great at removing some VOCs, but a lot of the v other VOCs, which 
impact our health are not actually captured by those. And these filters also require tons of regular maintenance, and that also comes with huge economic costs. So one of the things we've been looking at is indoor biofilters, where we're actually using microbes to both remove, you know, metabolize air pollution like VOCs and also capture particulate matter. And the idea being that these living systems could essentially be regenerative and you know, filtering and cleaning themselves. Can you talk a little bit more about that mechanism of action? Plants have a bunch of different mechanisms with which they help us filter air. One of those mechanisms is actually capturing particulate matter on their leaves and therefore removing it or dropping it down to the ground. Another air filtration component that we don't often consider air filtration is actually the ability of, of plants to cool the air. So the, the temperature of the air is a part of its quality. Another component that the plants, but actually more the soil can perform is the removal of VOCs. You know, often people describe volatile organic compounds as that new car smell. These VOCs we're finding can have uh, negative environmental impacts on your health, and they are generated not just from new materials in buildings, but also from things like printers and equipment in the building, as well as from ourselves. It's actually the microbes in the soil. And they are able to, in, in their respiratory process, break down and metabolize VOCs through their biological process. So while many people think, you know, just putting a plant in your house is going to improve air quality, it's often not that simple. There's studies where it's showing you'd have to put hundreds of plants in your house to kind of create that equilibrium balance. But what we and some other folks have looked at, you know, dating back to the 70s at NASA is actually more active indoor air biofiltration, which includes pulling the air not just through the plants, but actually through a porous soil medium. And in that context, the soil is actually providing primary components of the filtration, not, not the plants themselves. Have you implemented this in different places? Is this technology being used in different settings right now? Ourselves and a number of other companies have built indoor air biofiltration living walls where you know air gets pulled through the wall and then back into the HVAC system. And in a lot of ways, they become sort of the return air makeup for, for a building's HVAC system, providing initial filtration before it then you know, goes to UV and other HEPA filters. From our perspective as, as researchers, but also practitioners, is that a bunch more research needs to be done for them to be very effective. And that both includes us doing it in the laboratory scale, but also rolling them out into more buildings where we can actually do long-term monitoring on their, their continual effectiveness. So for us, it's something that we wouldn't want to promote right now, for example, to break down or kill COVID because that hasn't been tested, but it has been tested around other VOCs and, and contaminants. And so for us, it's, it's looking at this approach of sort of integrating ecology back into our lives rather than sealing it away from us. And obviously for the last couple centuries of architectural and urban development, we've taken an antiseptic approach to public health. And the interesting problems that has brought about is it both, you know, reduces people's ability to, to sort of build up antibodies and to combat it themselves. But it also starts to have these issues where we build superbugs or we have HVAC systems that then produce Legionalia, you know, which can have health impacts. And a lot of that is because we don't have a healthy mix of 
microbes that are creating a balanced environment. We'd love to hear a little bit about sort of what you have your eyes on and what the next frontier is. For us, one of the interesting things as we move towards this hopefully post-COVID pandemic era is that we will actually continue to have focus and interest in funding public and environmental health in the long term and taking what many people are calling as more of a planetary or an interconnected health approach. We're hoping that in this this post-pandemic era, there's more of a focus on how our environment impacts our health and a turn towards more interest in environmental justice communities. To learn more, head over to metropolismag.com and read our article, After 2020, Designing for Air Quality Will Never Be the Same, written by Audrey Gray and edited by Akiva Blander. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi. Today's stories were reported by Audrey Gray and Akiva Blander. A big thanks to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. According to a July report from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, rent is out of reach for most low-wage workers in every U.S. state. A person working full-time has to earn at least $20.40 per hour to afford even a modest one-bedroom apartment or home. That's $20.40 per hour. And if you need a reminder, federal minimum wage stands now at $7.25 an hour. So is there a way to give people affordable housing while also tackling the climate crisis? That's our next episode in two weeks. Join us again for Deep Green, available every other Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts.